Let me pray as we uh, begin to look at those verses. The prophet Isaiah reminds us that the grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of our God stands forever. Well, God, we thank you that uh, your word does stand forever. Even words that were written uh, many hundreds of years ago still uh, have something to say to us today. So we pray that you would speak, and we pray that you would give us ears to hear and hearts to be obedient. For Jesus' sake, amen. Well, as Jonathan has said, uh, we're beginning this evening a new series in the prophet Micah. And uh, as we do so, I was reminded this week of an old story of a curate who uh, served a church in a rather rough part of the east end of London. Uh, He was a very, very sound curate. He'd probably been to Wycliffe Hall or something like that. Uh, And he was given to preaching rather long sermons. Uh, One Sunday evening, he decided that he was going to preach on all of the Old Testament prophets. Quite ambitious, but there we go. That's the sort of chap he was. Uh, He began in the major prophets, uh, half an hour past. Uh, After half an hour, he uh, moved on to the uh, minor prophets. At the 45 minutes mark, he uh, paused for breath, and this is what he said. Uh, Now, my friends, we come to Micah. What shall we do with Micah? Where shall we put Micah? Well, he was rather put out when a rather tough member of his flock stood up and said this. Well, you can give him my seat, Governor. I'm going home. (laughs) Don't worry. I don't tell that story because I'm planning to speak for 45 minutes. Uh, I'm very grateful no one's left uh, just yet. But my guess is that uh, if you'd read the term card and uh, you'd seen we were approaching the prophet Micah, uh, your heart was not necessarily ringing uh, with excitement, if I can put it like that. It might be quite hard at first glance to to see what what Micah has to say to us today. It's a bit obscure. Wouldn't be the first choice I guess most of us would uh, go to. But I'm hoping that as we spend time listening to what he has to say over the next few weeks, that we're going to find that actually there's a lot more there than we might first think. There's a lot that he has to say that speaks directly to the situation that we find ourselves in. We're going to come on to uh, Micah at the main part of the prophecy in a moment. But before we do so, let me sketch out a few sort of preliminary details Uh, as it were, to uh, fill us in a bit about who Micah was and what was the world uh, like in which uh, he was ministering. Well, we don't have to look very far, actually, for those details because we can see them in verse 1 of chapter 1. He tells us, doesn't he, who he is. He is Micah of Moresheth, uh, who's ministering during the reigns of Jotham, uh, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, the kings of Judah. Uh, And what we have in front of us is the vision that he saw concerning Samaria and Jerusalem. Uh, Well, the name Micah is a very common name uh, in in that uh, time. Uh, It means something like this, uh, who is like the Lord, which is quite appropriate given uh, Micah's uh, prophecies. Uh, His hometown, we're told, uh, was uh, Moresheth. Moresheth was a sort of small town about 20 miles southwest of Jerusalem. Sort of imagine from kind of Thetford uh, from here or so, something like that. Uh, Micah was a countryman, therefore, uh, who was called by God to speak his words to the city. He was a bit of an outsider in some ways, a bit like the prophet Amos, if you know anything about uh, Amos. Uh, 
Uh, Micah's ministry took place during the reigns of three particular kings, and they're listed there, aren't they? Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah. So it was across a span of approximately 20 years or so, something, uh, something like that. Uh, and in many ways, that, that, that period was a time of crisis for uh, the, the, the kingdom of Judah. Uh, they were facing problems because the rival nation of Assyria was growing in great strength and number. And it was threatening the, the peace and security that they'd uh, previously taken for granted. It had been a period of prosperity, but they were being threatened by outsiders. Uh, much as in our own time, the global political scene was pretty uncertain. Nobody really knew quite what was going to happen. There were various movers and shakers appearing, but it was all very uncertain. But alongside the political upheaval, there was great social and economic upheaval uh, as well. Uh, So the years uh, leading up to this period had been generally pretty secure and pretty uh, prosperous. And what had happened was, you, as is so often the way uh, when, uh, when this thing happens, uh, you'd had a wealthy elite who'd got very, very, very filthy rich. And they'd done it at the expense of those at the bottom. There was a, a wide mass of people who were pretty, uh, pretty uh, cheesed off with the situation, pretty uh, frustrated, uh, couldn't really see any, any hope for their immediate future. They seemed to be getting poorer rather uh, than uh, better off. Uh, and there was this sort of tension between uh, the kind of the, the, the uh, society in which uh, Micah lived. Uh, corruption and exploitation were absolutely rife. Uh, and again, as so often happens when nations become prosperous, uh, they forget the Lord. And again, that's what had happened uh, here. Again, there are parallels, aren't there, with, with our own uh, day and age. Uh, social tensions, some people seem to be very well off, often at the expense of those at the bottom. And God is nowhere to be seen, or so it seems. Uh, Jonathan helpfully uh, reminded us at the start of uh, our service as well that we're entering the season of Advent in the church calendar. Uh, And Advent is historically that that time of the the year when we consider the return of the Lord Jesus and what that means. It's sort of alongside his first coming. And, of course, Micah has something to say on that as well, both with some very famous prophecies a bit later on, but also in some sort of allusions uh, as well. So we're going to see some of that as well. But anyway, uh, Micah was commanded by God to expose the extent of the problems uh, that he saw and to encourage God's people to return to the Lord. And in this uh, opening chapter, uh, he first addresses uh, Samaria, And then he moves on to address Judah. So I'm going to take it in two halves. uh, Verses uh, 2 to 7, first of all, and then uh, 8 to uh, 16, uh, secondly. So let's have a look at the first half, shall we? Uh, The message to Samaria. And the message to Samaria is very simply this. Abandon your paganism. Abandon your paganism. Uh, Picture, if you will, a, a great courtroom. Uh, packed with people waiting to hear the verdict at the end of a sensational uh, court case. Uh, That is the scene that Micah presents for us here, and you can see it in verse 2. He says, Hear, O peoples, all of you, listen, O earth, and all who are in it, that the sovereign Lord may witness against you. Uh, The prophet Micah is summoning all the nations of the world to come and hear the witness or the testimony 
of God against them. Uh, They might think that God is only interested in the doings of his people. They couldn't be further from the truth. Uh, God is the God of all nations. He's the God of all space and time. Uh, He cares about everything and everyone who is in the world that he created. The great irony at the start of this chapter is that the nation of uh, Israel, God's people, were called to be a light to the nations. They were called to be a witness to the nations. And there's an irony here. It was supposed to be a positive witness. And here it is going to be a negative one. They will be a witness, actually a witness or a warning of God's judgment, rather than a testimony of his salvation. Micah goes on, doesn't he, from verse 3, and he gives details of how God is proposing to deal with his people. And they really are nothing short of spine-tingling, aren't they? Verse 3, he says, Look, the Lord is coming from his dwelling place. He comes down, he treads the high places of the earth. The mountains melt beneath him. The valleys split apart like wax before the fire, like water rushing down a slope seems to me that so many people today think that if there is a God at all, and they're not really sure that there is in any event, then if he's there, then somehow he's sort of completely remote and disconnected, completely uninterested in what happens on planet Earth. And again, Micah says there's nothing that could be further from the truth. God does care intimately about what happens on our world. Uh, More than that, he promises that he will visit his world in power. It's a picture here of a general uh, marching out to war. It's a a ferocious picture, uh, a frightening picture of the Lord coming in judgment. Uh, That is why even creation itself will tremble before him. The mountains melt beneath him. The valleys split apart. It's awesome imagery, isn't it? We don't quite know whether Micah is talking literally or uh, figuratively, to some extent, it doesn't really matter. The grand picture is clear, isn't it? That when the Lord comes, it will be an awesome and a terrible day. At no one, at nothing, not even at the high mountains, will be able to stand against him. Everything, even creation, will testify to how great our God is. Well, what is it that has provoked such a response uh, from God against his people? What is it? Uh, Well, the answer, I think, is found for us in uh, verse 5. Micah says for us, All this is because of Jacob's transgression. It's because of the sins of the house of Israel. Uh, A transgression is an act of defiance. It's a deliberate attempt to violate the boundaries that God has set out for us. Um, A sin, on the other hand, is an act of failure. It's a kind of falling short, if you like, of the standards that God demands for us. Uh, Micah tells us that God's people actually are guilty of both of those things. Uh, They're guilty of transgression, they're guilty of sins... And actually, it manifests itself in one particular way. And again, we can see it in verse 5. It's because they're committed to paganism. Uh, So Samaria and Jerusalem, the two capital cities, uh, have become hotbeds of pagan worship. Uh, Micah tells us here, doesn't he? He says uh, he refers to uh, Judah's high place. 
Now, a high place is not simply a, a mountain. It's a location that had been set apart for the worship of pagan idols. Uh, it's a, it shows us that, that paganism was absolutely rife among God's people. I mean, that in itself is pretty shocking, isn't it? That the people of the, of the covenant-keeping God should be found messing around with idols, with you know, pagan fertility stuff, is shocking. In fact, it's even worse, isn't it? Because he's, at the end of verse 5, Micah says, well, what is Judah's high place? And the answer comes back, it's Jerusalem. Jerusalem, the place where the temple was, the place where God himself was supposed to reveal himself to his people. Micah just says, well, it's just a high place. It's given over to idol worship. Maybe that was literally, we don't, we don't really know. It might just have been that he's kind of saying metaphorically, you know, God's people gather for worship, they, they kind of pay lip service to me, but actually their hearts are elsewhere. We don't know. But whatever it is, it's pretty damning, isn't it? The nation is rotten at the core. Well, we shouldn't be surprised that the Lord is so damning, should we? Because the Bible is consistently clear that God is a jealous God who will not tolerate uh, any rivals. Uh, he demands that nothing takes the place in the hearts of his people that is reserved for him alone. Remember the very uh, the, 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 uh, the Ten Commandments and the, and the and Commandments, you shall have no other gods before me. The Lord our God is a jealous God. Uh, we live in an age, don't we, where it's uh, very fashionable to proclaim that all religions are basically equal that there are many ways to God. There are lots of gods uh, that we can worship. It's particularly fashionable at this time of year, isn't it, where different uh, city councils try and uh, sort of stick on Winterval or some kind of uh, bizarre winter festival that's a sort of mash-up of lots of different things. But Micah's vision should really challenge us on that point. There really is one God alone. One God. Uh, Yahweh, God who is uh, three in one. He alone deserves worship. Uh, he alone should be recognised and acknowledged as the one true God. To proclaim otherwise, to even hint at it, is to proclaim a lie. Maybe that asks questions of our society, but it should definitely ask questions of us as well, shouldn't it, as the people of God. And it should ask us this question, shouldn't it? Uh, who do we worship? Uh, I came across a quote quite recently from the American writer, David Foster Wallace. Uh, he was giving a, uh, a lecture some not too uh, long ago, and he perceptively, I think, made this comment. Uh, he said, everyone worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. Everyone worships. Now, that might sound a bit surprising when we live in an age which is supposed to be a secular age, where lots of people have moved away from worship. But I think he's onto something, isn't he? All of us worship something, whether we like to admit it or not. It's probably not going to be Baal worship or some kind of pagan facility symbol as it was uh, in uh, this chapter. But it could well be something else, couldn't it? It could be money or possessions. We've just had Black Friday, haven't we? And, and, and we saw some, frankly, obscene scenes, didn't we? Sometimes there's people kind of storming to try and get things that they want. I read somewhere that something like 25% of all that's bought on Black Friday will just end up in a, in a rubbish dump somewhere. That's a damning indictment of the grip that materialism has on the hearts of so many people. 
Maybe it's not money. Maybe it's uh, beauty or appearances. Maybe it's intellect. I, I don't know. But whatever we worship, it matters. And the startling reminder that Micah gives to us here is, is that if it's not God who we worship, then in time we must expect to face the consequences. Here for Samaria, it is the prospect of total destruction. And it is absolute, isn't it? You can see that verse 6. There will be a heap of rubble, just a place for planting vineyards. There will, uh, stones will be poured into the valley. The foundations will be completely uh, laid out there and everything smashed to pieces. For us, the Bible explains, it, it, it will be a life apart from God in eternity. Who are you worshipping? Who are you worshipping? Let's move on to the second half of the chapter. And this is a message to the people of Judah. And the message that Micah has for the people of Judah is this. Abandon your pride. Abandon your pride. Well, given the fate that Micah has outlined for uh, Samaria, we, we might expect that Judah might show some wisdom and repent as quickly as possible. But sadly, as we read on that, it's pretty evident that the sickness that's gripped Samaria is gripping Judah as well. Uh, Verse 9, Micah says, Her wound is incurable. It has come to Judah. Uh, In fact, it's actually got so bad, it's reached Jerusalem as well, as we've just seen. It's reached the very gates of my people, even to Jerusalem itself. Uh, Sin is like an infected gangrenous wound. If If you don't treat it, it spreads, and it gets worse and worse. If it's not treated... Uh, it will spread. That's exactly what we're seeing here. Uh, God's people have ignored uh, the sin that's rife in the middle, and it's got worse and worse. Maybe another illustration, it's like a you know, acorn, my, uh, little acorns turn to mighty oaks. If you don't deal with it, it gets very hard to get rid of it. But what's Micah's response? Uh, Micah's response, I think, is very uh, worth us noting, and you can see it in verse uh, 8. He says, Because of all this, I will weep and wail. I'll go about barefoot and naked. Uh, there's no kind of dispassionate, dispassionate sort of cool uh, detachment with Micah, is there? He's not sort of saying, well, you know, fair enough, so I warned you, off you go, and uh, there we are. Uh, he really cares about his people. Uh, he'll weep, he'll wail, he'll go barefoot and naked. So he's going to uh, wail like a jack- howl like a jackal or moan like an owl. I think it's more likely to be moan like an ostrich. Uh, ostriches are rather more savage than uh, owls, I think. Not quite sure whether the NWO has translated it as owls, but there we go. doesn't sound so frightening, does it, if it's an owl? Whatever it is, uh, Micah is seeing his people afflicted by sin, uh, facing God's judgment, and his heart is broken at what he sees. If only, if only they had listened to the warnings then all of this might well have been avoided. Uh, I was struck as I was preparing this week. I I, I wonder if we show a similar degree of concern for those around us who are facing the prospect of God's judgment. It's not a comfortable subject, is it? It's not something that we want to think about. It's rather redolent of people in sandwich boards uh, standing outside Primark. But it's a fact. Uh, Too often I, I fear that we don't see people as God sees them. We don't have compassion on them. We don't see the urgent need for them to turn back to him. We don't weep for the lost in the way that we might. Maybe that's just something to learn from Micah. 
But anyway, uh, Judah hasn't listened for all of Micah's uh, prophesying. Uh, And Micah outlines for us the fate uh, that awaits them. And verses 10 to 15 really are a pretty grim tour, aren't they, of the towns of Micah's homeland. Uh, A whole list of uh, names of these fairly obscure places, but they would have meant a lot to Micah and to his people. Uh, The big picture is that each one of them is facing destruction uh, as the Assyrians arrive as the instruments of God's judgments on his people. Uh, It's rather hard to uh, get get the full picture of it in our English translations. You can see something from the the footnotes down in the bottom of your Bibles. But Micah uses some very, very clever wordplay and puns to describe the carnage that he sees. Uh, One preacher that uh, has preached on this uh, helps us to, to understand it. He's a Scotsman. And he imagined what it'd be like if a uh, sort of if a Scottish preacher was looking around Scotland and uh, doing the same. And let me sort of read it out for you. I won't do the accent because I can't, but it will give you some idea of what it's like. Uh, Creef will know grief, forfar will forfeit, crail will be frail, wick will be burned, storn away will be blown away, tain will know pain. Just gives you an idea. It's, it's sort of uh, taking the, the kind of sounds of the names or their kind of meanings and, and kind of flipping around, playing around with them uh, in, a, in a sort of ironic sense. That's what, what Micah is doing here. Anyway, you don't need to know Hebrew to realise it's a pretty desperate scene, isn't it? It really is a grim picture. It's a disaster from the Lord, as Micah tells us in verse 12. Uh, no one will be spared. In fact, even, he says, that uh, the destruction isn't, isn't even the end of it. Verse 16 is where the climax really hits home, isn't it? He says, you will go, uh, they will go from you into exile. They'll be taken off, away from their homeland, into exile and into disgrace. Well, again, what, what could possibly have caused God to respond to his people uh, like this? Uh, what is the big issue that is facing these people. Well, it isn't the easiest to see, but I think verse 13 uh, holds the key for us to understanding what's going on. Uh, In verse 13, uh, Micah focuses particularly on the city of Lachish. Uh, Lachish is little known today, but at the time it was a military stronghold. It was again about 30 miles or so southwest of Jerusalem, so it was within the vicinity of of Micah's own kind of birthplace, uh, Moresheth. He, He would have known it really, really well. Uh, it was a military stronghold. It was where the, the crack kind of cavalry and, um, <coughs> excuse me, and chariots units that were kind of the trident weapon systems of their day were based. And it's Lachish that um, Micah kind of focuses on because he says that it was the beginning of sin to the daughter of Zion. Uh, it was the place where the, uh, the transgressions of Israel were found. And why is it that Lachish of all places is this uh, beginning of sin to the people of Judah? Well, I think it's because Lachish is sort of emblematic or symbolic of the pride that the people of God were placing in their military prowess and in their political dealings. They were very proud of their chariots, of their uh, fine weapon systems, cutting edge. They were proud of the, the dealings that they'd made over the years with the surrounding nations, the peace and the prosperity that they thought that they had won uh, for themselves. But really, it was pride. It was pride which led in turn to self-reliance, reliance away from the living God, the God whom they should have been trusting in. 
And it's pride, isn't it, that Micah says will be exposed in the face of Assyrian power that is backed by God himself. Certainly, rather mockingly, you know, verse 13, harness the team to the chariots. Go on, guys, harness it. Uh, if you're not running at the enemy, you'll be running from them. You can harness the chariots, it's going to have no effect whatsoever. God will bring a conqueror against you, and disgrace and shame will very quickly follow. Uh, the writer and the art critic John Ruskin apparently used to say that pride is at the bottom of all great mistakes. Pride is at the bottom of all great mistakes. I'm not sure if that's true, but I certainly think it's pride that's at the bottom of Judah's mistakes. It was a foolish pride, a pride in their own strength, a pride in their own power instead of the power of God. It is, I think, the same pride that caused the first human, human beings, Adam and Eve, to decide to, to ignore what God had said, to decide to go their own way, to seek to live without him. It's the same pride that persuades us today that we can somehow manage without God's that we can trust in our own resources uh, rather than in him. And yet here there are some hints that uh, it will not always be this way. Because Micah looks back and he looks forward. Uh, You can notice that the list of uh, towns that he gives us is topped and tailed by two towns in particular. Uh, Verse 10, it starts with uh, Gath, and at the end, at verse 15, it ends with Adullam. Uh, Gath and Adullam were the scenes of, both of them were the scenes of some of King David's uh, sort of lowest moments of defeat. King David was Israel's greatest king, the great hero that all the other kings and the people who came after him looked uh, back to. Uh, Micah's reminding them that even great King David, the man after God's own heart, Even great King David was defeated. And now his descendants, the kings of David's line, are going to know the same. In one sense, he's saying it's deja vu, it's nothing uh, nothing new. But actually, I think here there is a hint that there's something else that will happen. That there is a king to come from David's line who will never know defeat. There is a, a greater David A greater David who one day will deal with his people's pride and his people's disgrace at the cross. He is a greater David, a greater king, who will in fact drain the cup of judgment for all people. He is the Lord Jesus, the one who triumphs over the last enemy, not Assyria, but death. And he will return again in glory to vanquish all those who persecute the people of God, to establish his kingdom once and for all. And there is an invitation here from the Lord Jesus not to trust in ourselves, not to trust in the strength of our resources or in politics or in military power, but in him and his almighty strength. All human strength one day will fail. But the Bible tells us that the one who trusts in the Lord will never be put to shame. Micah says, turn from pride and trust in the greater David to come. Well, what shall we do with Micah? To go back to that question from the preacher. Well, let us do this. Let's listen to Micah 
Let's listen to him. Let's turn from pride. Let's turn from idolatry. Let's put the Lord Jesus in thrones in our hearts and find our security in him. Shall we pray? Lord our God, we thank you for these words from the prophet Micah. Uh, We thank you that you are honest about the states of the human heart. And we recognise that these things in so many ways are true for us today. They're true for the nation of which we are a part. And we do pray that we would uh, find our security and our strength in the Lord Jesus, the greater David, the great King who comes to reign. Help us, we pray, uh, by your Spirit. Amen.